Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Mental and Physical Conditioning for the Road Ahead. Our conversation today will focus on the most successful strategies used by elite athletes, military, successful CEOs and leaders for optimally performing under extreme pressure. Company budgets are tightening, with downsizing continuing, and we're experiencing health and economic impact. And of course, the holidays are soon approaching, which for many can be an additional time of stress. So we all need to condition ourselves to operate the best we can in an environment of extreme challenge. Our guest today is Dr. Adam Wright. Adam is an internationally recognized peak performance consultant who specializes in mental and physical conditioning. Over the past 20 years, he has coached high-level individuals and teams, including professional athletes, internationally acclaimed artists, CEOs, and hedge fund executives. He is an author, university lecturer in sport and exercise psychology, and a speaker on optimal human performance. Dr. Wright received his bachelor's degree from LaSalle University and his master's and doctoral degrees from Temple University. He is also an ACSM certified exercise physiologist and an NSCA certified strength and conditioning coach. Welcome, Adam, and thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am too. Quite frankly, I'm looking forward to learning a lot from this as well. This is an area where I'm guessing you tell us, you don't need to be a professional athlete or (laughs) a performer. This is a time where we all can use whatever support and whatever tips we can to be as mentally and physically resilient for the road ahead. Exactly. We're all performers, particularly now. And one thing that I'm hearing from most all my clients, regardless of whether they're in the professional athletic space or my CEOs or some Hollywood execs, they're anxious and they're overwhelmed. Everybody's anxious right now. And how can we not be? Life right now is filled with ambiguity. And we feel like we have a lack of control of ourselves and our environment. And we're working from home. We feel disconnected. Many of my clients are telling me that they're on 24-7. They're literally getting texts at 3 a.m. from their bosses. Or there they are, the bosses, texting their team at 3 a.m. And there's just no separation right now between the personal and professional life the weekend and the weekday, being a parent, being a spouse, being an employee, everything's kind of just meshing together in such a way I think that's causing a great deal of alarm and concern. And it's clear to me that this is something that we cannot continue with. We're still in panic mode and we're going to have to go from a sprint to more of a marathon type training right now. And we can learn a lot from what we do with athletes. And that's how I approach all my clients as corporate athletes. So let's start there. Clearly, you teach on this and you coach on this, how to best be mentally and physically at optimal performance. Where does it start and what's your framework for us to think about this? 
That is such a in-depth question. I, I teach undergraduates for the exercise psychology 101, and basically we spend an entire semester trying to unravel that. And I always say, this is merely the tip of the iceberg. There's seven more years of study that goes into this. It really, and I'm still learning this space because I think what's interesting about it and why it's endlessly fascinating is we often look at things through a silo. Right? We work in our silos and we really don't communicate well, particularly in academia. But the space of performance is informed by so many different areas from the movement sciences and kinesiology and medicine and psychology and positive psychology and cognitive neuroscience and nutrition. Like you could see how there are so many different disciplines that feed into this concept of optimal performance. I think the hardest thing to do is to take this all in. And I guess it's the art. It's like the artful application of the science of performance. The key term that we use right now is everything should be evidence-based. And that's the idea in medicine, evidence-based, we should have research support. And I agree, but much of this also has to be evidence-informed. So I might take an intervention that's been tested over and over again with sophomore female volleyball players. And we know visualization skills works with this population. Well, I might be extrapolating. Maybe it doesn't work for my 57-year-old C-suite executive necessarily in the research, but probably safe to assume that it may work to some degree. And kind of that's how we're operating. So a lot of this is testing the field to see what's worked based on the research that's out there. I think a good place to start, and I think I'd like to hear your take on this too, particularly from an HR perspective, as I'm getting deeper into this field and trying to understand it and your needs, is this idea about mental resilience and what that means to you. Because in my world, it's been a key term and a buzzword for decades, but I'm hearing more and more of it in the executive space. What is your take on it? I think it's brilliant that it's becoming more and more of a discussion and beyond a discussion that we're all working together to find ways to enable more mental resilience as well as the physical. I mean, you gave the examples earlier of leaders pinging people at 3 a.m. and whatever. Good practices for leaders shouldn't go away just because we're working from home. And I often listen to the words people use, and I'll just be having either regular conversation with colleagues. And it's fascinating. I sometimes write them down. And that people are using words like crazy. It's crazy right now. It's insane and intense, which isn't even as big a word as the others. And to your point, that's not sustainable. And we should all want optimal. So that takes both the physical and mental. And I think there's more of an appreciation that companies have a big role to play in that. And so, yes, in this conversation, it's a big partnership with HR, but all leaders have a big role to play in enabling that environment that allows that. I think it's a great point. And in creating that culture remotely, I think is one of the challenges. This is an aside, but I just took position as the head mental performance coach for the Puerto Rican women's national team in lacrosse. And we are doing now selection, team selection remotely. <laughs> like we are not seeing these women in person. It's a whole new ballgame. It's a fascinating way to go in and leveraging technology and creating community and creating chemistry and assessments. There's so much to learn about what we're doing in sport, particularly at the national and Olympic level. I think that could translate really well into the workplace. Tell us a little bit about what you're learning, some of the key learnings from your experience with athletes or military or leaders. What really matters? So I think first we have to operationally define a few terms. And I think framework and philosophy matters. And a big part of this is understanding what we mean when we say mental resilience, because I'm not sure we're all talking on the same plane here. And may I add to your point, 
globally, that takes on very different meanings as well. Cross-culturally matters, and absolutely. And so I think, let's look from the framework of an athlete. A resilient athlete is someone who can be able to overcome setbacks. At the same time, they can remain confident. And one of the interesting characteristics within that is they have the ability to bring their focus to the present moment. They don't get stuck in the past. They don't get focused on the future. They can be in the here and now. The way I look at it and the way I teach my students, when you think of myths, in Greek, the resilient athlete is like the phoenix. It gets burned up and it comes back. And, but then you have to question, is that really what we want? Do we want to come back the same as we were before every time we experience stress or trauma? And I would say, no, we want to come back stronger. That's the idea. So then I think you have to throw in this word grit. And I don't know if you're familiar with Angela Duckworth's work, colleague at University of Pennsylvania. She does wonderful research. It's fascinating. I suggest everyone pick up her book and read it. So much to be learned. But grit is basically a trait. And it's based upon an individual's ability to persevere. It's a perseverance of effort combined with passion for some kind of long-term goal or an end state. And that's interesting because we really don't see that in the term mental resilience. The notion of passion is not there. They persevere, but it's not driven by a passion because what we know about passion is passion is intimately related with intrinsic motivation to be motivated from the inside out as opposed to externally motivated by rewards or simply a salary or some type of external achievement or accolade. I think that's important. And I would look at mental resilience and Angela's talked about this as well as a part of grit, but grit is staying above. But I would take that another level. And this is how I approach it with all our athletes. And for instance, this is what we're explaining to our athletes right now on the team is that we want you to be anti-fragile. And if anybody's familiar with Nassim Tlaib's work, He's a former hedge fund manager and he's a professor at NYU, I believe. That's a concept which really encompasses something much more. And the idea is that we talked about things being crazy just now. Well, he's going to argue that things need chaos. They need disorder in order to truly thrive and to flourish. And what we see right now, what we describe, we call it a VUCA environment. Things are volatile. They're changing quickly. There's a lot of uncertainty. It's unpredictable. It's complex. There's no cause and effect chain, really, right? These multiplexes of forces coming at us from all directions. And it's filled with ambiguity, which means we have mixed meanings out there. And it's it's some kind of hazy reality. We're trying to figure this all out. And the idea with this is, for at least from an anti-fragile perspective, is rather than trying to create an environment or create our lives to play against this randomness, to play against, to in some way, shape, or another, to protect us from misfortune and this volatility, The idea is that we should actually try to engage with it. Everything is susceptible to stress, to change, some type of volatility or entropy, everything. The idea is how we create a system that over and over again, you can grow from it. Much like a hydra. That would be the myth. That would You cut off one head, what happens? Two come back. And this is what we're trying to teach all our athletes. This is kind of the concept, at least philosophically. I think the problem is people take this a step farther. So, yeah, okay. Further, and think of Nietzsche, the German philosopher, the existentialist philosopher, and say, okay, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We've all heard this. Well, if you look at his life, it was short and it was pretty miserable, and he died when he went mad in Turin. I don't know if that's necessarily what we want. Whatever doesn't kill us eventually might kill us if we don't allow for recovery and if we don't allow to cope, if we don't allow ourselves to grow and to learn. So I think we have to be very careful about this because trauma and chaos, day after day, doesn't toughen you up. It breaks you down. It makes you fragile. You need to nurture yourself. You need to strengthen your capacity to learn and to adapt. 
the whole idea and everything we do in sports psychology basically is become emotionally, psychologically flexible. This is what we're going for. The idea is to be able to develop enough of what we call self-mastery. So not necessarily for us and to deal with these environments, but to serve others. And I think if we take that whole concept within sport and team building and bring us into the work world, into the leadership literature, I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot of possibilities there. We need to talk across silos more and more because there's much to be learned. I totally agree. Let's probe on that because I think you might be saying also the days of sort of a grin and bear it culture are kind of over. Our systems, at least within corporations, really need to change. It's not okay to just kind of not let people know that you're struggling or the environment is in that moment maybe too much pressure. To your point, some of that is, of course, the way it is and goodness. But is there enough, as you say, recovery, growth and learning, passion that anchors you? Yes. I think the equation that that is best is growth equals stress plus rest. And if you just have stress, the chronic flat line of stress, you will ultimately kill any living organism. That's basically, it's the hans Solier stress response. And stress has been amplified during this time with COVID and working from home. We want a nice wavy line. If we think of what an athlete goes through, this is a perfect example. And why, when we talk about the corporate athlete, we really miss the point in this. If you look at an athlete, we look at their way of training, we call it periodization. So we try to chain them in such a way that they have a season and they peak for that season. They train really hard for the season. The season's very short, but they have micro recovery during the training. They have an entire down season when they're not training at all. They have an entire team that's taking care of their mental well-being, their physical well-being, their nutrition. They usually have sleep coaches now. What we see in professional athletes who, by the way, their life, their season, let's say NFL players, about 3.5 years. NBA is about five years. MLB is probably about six years. They have a very short career. Maybe certain sports like golf where you see a longer tail or tennis these days, but they spend little time in competition and a ton of time in practice. When we think about the knowledge worker, it's just the opposite. Very little practice. Maybe some additional training, some executive coaching if you're in C-suite. They compete every day intensely. At this point, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Maybe they get a couple of weeks off a year. Usually they're working during these weeks. And how long is their career? 40 years? 50 years? Longer and longer. So we like to use this term of corporate athlete, and Jim Lauer used this decades ago, but we really don't treat our knowledge workers in this way. And I think we need to. We need to change the framework because... If we keep going this way with this chronic flatline, what we're having are people that are just completely overwhelmed and burned out. And I don't think that's what we want in our workforce. Tell us a little bit also about cognitive fatigue, since we're also spending more and more time on devices. We're on Zoom right now, but it's a device every other hour and all day long. And there seems to be a lot of research about, obviously, that's helping us, but it also is causing some challenges. The funny thing is we talk about cognitive fatigue, but basically what we think of cognition is the emerging properties of the brain. So cognitive fatigue is your experience of it, but it is brain fatigue. It's a physiological phenomenon. We like to think about it as a psychological experience, what we call the phenomenology of experience, but ultimately we are draining the brain. And here's a great framework. And I think this is something that I like in terms of how I present this to my athletes is that I like to say we're working from four mountains towards self-mastery. And the idea is that We're going to have a physical mountain, we're going to have a mental mountain, we're going to have an emotional mountain, 
And then something that I call Kokoro Mountain, which is a Japanese word for kind of merging of the heart and mind, basically your purpose mountain. That's the idea of the three Ps, purpose, passion, and principles. And I think we have to address all them. And we get usually stuck on one or the other because that's what we're good at and that's what we focus on. But often we leave these others to the side and it's probably where we should spend more and more time. And the mental mountain is a very important one. And I think what you find, particularly with cognitive fatigue, even if these Zoom calls, by focusing in like this, even if you look at the optics of this, it's very simple. When my eyes focus like this on a very specific point, it elevates my sympathetic nervous system. So the part of my nervous system that has to do with fight or flight is elevated simply by having this focal point. The moment I look outside, I could see the buildings to me, I'm looking out the window, I could see some trees, I could see kind of a panoramic vision here. And what happens? I immediately relax. My autonomic nervous system down-regulates. So I get more parasympathetic activity. So it's just simply by sitting down looking at this is making me more stressed and fatigued. There are other elements too, just in our normal conversation that we would be doing unconsciously. Like I have to consciously look at you right now. This is might be just audio, but I have to really search for your body language and what you're doing and how you're responding to me. And everything that was once unconscious is now conscious. I could see three people in person and be energized. For me to have three clients online, I need to take a nap. It is remarkably fatiguing, particularly from an attentional control perspective. Now, couple that with the constant bombardment of the phone and pulling our attention away and getting these emails and texts coming through and constantly have to renegotiate back to my engagement with a client, trying to get in a flow state, trying to be an active listener, trying to understand where they're coming from. It is a constant battle that uses all our energy and willpower. So is your point on these four mountains too, that you apply some of that, maybe climb and then rest and recovery or how best to navigate these mountains? So I guess my point to this was, yes, we could train the mental mountain. So we use things like biofeedback. We use meditation. We use visualization. We do goal setting and positive attitude and self-talk. We do attentional regulation. We work on flow states and finding elements of deep work. But if you're not addressing the physical part of this, if we're not addressing your sleep and recovery, your nutrition, your movement and exercise, your engagement with the outdoors, we're missing the boat. And then there's the emotional mountain, which is a whole other one in terms of emotional regulation. If you're not teaching awareness of your emotions, this is, this is the holy grail of leadership. If you're not teaching empathy and compassion, if you don't have some level of conscious leadership that's feeding all of this, what good is it? We have to have some sense of control over how we're engaging with others and how we're listening and caring for others. And a big part of that is training empathy more than anything else. I think that's a big one. Teaching skillful communication and active listening and maybe motivational interviewing. There are so many ways to teach this. And then the last one on this, which is also feeding this, is finding your sense of purpose. Finding why you're doing what you're doing. For a lot of people, this is the time to sit back and really have some deep reflection. Why are we doing this? What is this all about? You better be in line with your passion and principles, but there's no way you're going to continue doing this at the level that you need to do it. You will face burnout. You're not beyond basic physiology. So I think if we don't address all factors here, I think we're still going to end up overly stressed and overwhelmed because they all feed each other. And this is what makes it like it's a whole person integrated. We call it whole athlete focus or integrated athlete focus. And we should be doing the same. We treat our athletes like assets. I work with people that are worth millions of dollars. Why don't we treat everyone that way? It's true talent development. This is really what we want. We truly care. And somehow, as I entered this world, 
this corporate world, I don't see that at the same level. I agree with you. I think you're making some brilliant points. First, if your mindset is it's an asset, of course you're going to look at the whole and invest in it and balance, as you say, the practice and the competition. But I think from, largely speaking, the corporate world has a lot to learn from this. I guess the question is then, where do we start? So I think we have to start with the individual. So it's very hard to change a culture. I can tell you that right now, just going in, I'm working with it. NFL team and front office executives there and understanding what's going on and deal with COVID and, and realizing like best case scenario, if the NFL runs as planned, team's going to lose $150 million. It's like best case scenario. So at the same time, you have billions of dollars on the line to get this together and the stress is remarkable. And then you have coach changes and culture changes in the midst of this and everyone has to be on board. Very difficult to do, but you can start with the individual you can take care of your own house. And I think that's a great way to work, at least from a sports psychology perspective. How are we creating anti-fragile individuals? Well, I completely agree. It's a huge underlying belief from modern career as well that your company does play a role and your manager can play a role. But at the end of the day, you own your own career. It's your life. And to your point, we all play a role in our own health and our own well-being. And so the more we can learn and the more we can ask for. So if it's not in the environment, we can also help bring it to bear. So given your experience, have you seen anyone successful in this and at least rolling this out on a scalable at a company-wide level, utilizing technology or training? I think yes. And I think there's a lot underway that is bringing to bear, I think, to your point, the whole person. So a lot more recognition of those four elements than ever before. Although I think on things like the emotional mental side, there's a ways to go. Purpose is newer and not just like the company purpose, but also finding your own purpose within that is so critical. I mean, I think of, again, the health workers today going to work every day under extreme circumstances. And not only do they get the broader purpose why they're there, but I'm sure they have to dig pretty deep down into their shoes to go find something even bigger than that, putting their lives at risk. And I think there's more to do there. This balance of practice and competition and rest, I mean, years ago, things like sabbaticals came about, but there's more that can be done to appreciate the pace at which we work for optimal impact. And I think companies, we may still have a mindset that more is better all the time. And that's exactly what I was talking about in terms of finally breaking down. And I think if we don't empower individuals to create their own constraints in terms of recovery and call micro recovery during the day and understanding, starting with how the brain works. When we start working with athletes, when the first thing we do is create a model or metaphor for the brain. So in that sense, number one, you understand what's going on internally. You understand where these dialogues are coming from and realizing that when you're having these internal dialogues, often we feel like we're in a battle internally in frustration and being pulled in different directions from a decision-making process, feeling guilty, feeling shame, feeling all these things in terms of getting work done, not being available, spending time with your kids, have a kid at home, teaching him during the day, leaving. You're constantly feeling like you are not doing enough and understanding, okay, what's actually going on there in the brain? How can we step away from this and watch this from afar so we can diffuse from that dialogue necessarily that's not moving us forward towards value-based actions or goals, assuming that you've already set those value-based actions or goals. Assuming that you're already in touch with your values, assuming that you know what your mission is, you do have a personal ethos, you know why you're doing what you're doing other than a paycheck. So when we do this, we use something called Dr. Stephen Peters, 
he's a UK psychiatrist, he came up with something called the chimp management model, which I love. So kind of like the chimp is the limbic system, it's this older brain system, which roughly is going to be the emotional brain. Metaphors are great in science, by the way. Cognitive neuroscientists out there are going to shrug their head and say, oh my God. But the truth is it works because it gives a framework or a basic heuristic. Number one, to normalize your experience. And that's very important to realize that anxiety right now, this ambiguity, what is causing us this internal doubt. I think these voices that we're hearing are all normal. And the reason they're normal is because when we look at our chimp system, this limbic system, our emotional system is seeing our environment as a threat. That's what it does. Then we have the prefrontal cortex, which is the human brain or the professor brain, who usually is running a ship. It's just the facts and irrational. And it's usually hijacked by, we call it the chimp, the negativity. It's constantly searching based upon fear. And we can get deeper and deeper into this. There's other neural networks, they call it the computer system, that's feeding unconsciously our responses based upon our experience and our genetics. Much of this happens unconsciously. Like, we're not going to get rid of our anxiety. We're not going to get rid of these negative thoughts or these worries. The idea is, can we do it in such a way that they don't pull us to a place that makes us feel bad and stop moving forward? And what the argument is, is that we can, as long as we get the chimp from driving the boat, we'll get the human or the professor brain back in charge, their executive control function. And how do we do that? Well, we use another theory. And this is something that has been in the clinical literature for the last 20 years. It's called acceptance commitment training or acceptance commitment therapy. And it's a model was started by Stephen Hayes from UNLV and others, and it's probably the most useful theory that I've found that not only works with severely disturbed individuals, depressed individuals, anxiety-ridden, even schizophrenics, but also at the highest levels of performance with my professional athletes. And the idea with this basically is you don't have to get rid of your negative thoughts. You can separate from them far enough, you can see them as just what they are, chemical and electrical events that pop up that you have no control over, as your anxiety as well, Thank you very much, Chimp. I could refocus my attention on a value-based action and keep things moving forward and realize that as long as I can refocus my intention externally and keeping myself moving forward, I am ultimately going to feel better. And if we work on that premise, create enough separation for your thoughts and finally coming back to task relevant focus and moving forward, we could get through this. We get through pretty much anything, working at the razor's edge or even dealing with chronic stress because it gets us focused on what really matters to us. We don't get caught in that metacognating, getting stuck in the past and kind of, we call it dropping the rope. We call it basically being a tug in a war with kind of like this little monster chimp in your head, you're pulling back and forth. Rather than trying to beat the chimp, what do we do? We just let go of the rope. And once you let go of the rope, it frees you to focus on the task. The best thing to do when you're overwhelmed is move forward, it's to do something. That's what gives us dopamine. That's what gives us a reward system. It could be the smallest thing but we get caught ruminating, getting stuck and just feeling overwhelmed. And that becomes a downward spiral. And I can tell you right now, from a performance standpoint on the field, that's how we find choking moments. This is how we find panicking moments. And this is where we get basic performance that is less than desired over and over again. So I think it works really well in the workplace as well. Do you find to really look at the whole human and all these aspects, it takes a certain amount of vulnerability and openness to your point, because we're all feeling it and we're all in it. But are you seeing any differences in how, let's say, men or women express this reality and how they're coping or between any people? Who's doing it well and who's finding it easier to kind of, to your point, accept and move on? So remember, when people call me, it's a bias sample. 
regardless of gender or how they identify as a gender, they're willing to talk about it. They wouldn't call me. Do they express themselves differently? Yes, for the most part. And there's, I would say most men have difficulty naming their emotions, but they're open to it. They're open to talking about it. And part of what we do is we give them words to describe it. That's how we deal with it. Let's name it first. So for the most part, the people that I deal with are open. And I can tell you right now, dealing with a female national team, the girls are wonderful. They're great. Dealing with some of my younger male teams at the highest level, those guys are a little more challenging to get them to talk about their feelings. I also think that's a cultural thing. If you look at some NFL clubs and you look at the cultures and when the coaches are open to that, I think it really does trickle down to the rest of the organization, but it's a top down. It's a very different how Bill Belichick runs a club and how the Seattle Seahawks run on the club. There are differences culturally. There's clearly a factor here. We can get into, maybe be careful where we go with this because we could go down a rabbit hole. But for the most part, I think everyone could benefit by crystallizing their language and their understanding of their experience. Because what we're dealing with is a lack of control. And one way to control it is to understand what we're experiencing and normalizing it. And then to your point, talk about systems that could better enable things. Clearly in our earlier educational and as we're being brought up far before the workforce, shifting there could really help quite a bit. hundred percent. I was brought in years ago to do a, it was actually interesting, a novel physical education curriculum for a school in the West Village in New York City. And they allowed me to do whatever I wanted, which in the state guidelines was a private school, which was interesting. And basically we taught the kids how to breathe, teaching kids how to meditate. Just that ability to have a volume control to regulate your central nervous system is remarkably powerful. Even a few words. And we just used colors. Are you red, yellow, or green? Check in. The conscious leadership model would say, are you below the line or above the line? I ask people, here's one to 10. You're not allowed to use seven. Do not engage with a conversation of any meaning unless you're a seven or above. Fascinating. It's such a simple way to check in with yourself. It's a simple heuristic. But then the question is, okay, yeah, but I am really amped up. This means a lot. I'm really pissed off at this guy. Okay, great. But are you going to get to your outcome any quicker by being emotionally volatile? There's a joke. There's a reason that when you watch, I don't know if they even do it anymore at Disney, when they train the orca whales, the killer whales. But I can assure you, they do not use negative reinforcement. Everything is reward-based. Everything. They do not punish. You know why? Because it doesn't work. It might work in short term. It doesn't work in the long term. I mean, science tells it's very clear, but yet we let our emotions take over. It feels good for us, but ultimately, if your goal, your value-based action is get this person to perform better or get yourself to perform better, because a lot of this dialogue is beating up, it's going on internally, not just externally. I always say those of us of an age who remember John McEnroe, John McEnroe in your head, yelling at you, that doesn't work in the long term. As another aside, I did some training with Navy SEALs a few months ago, and this one does. <laughs> I have a lot of colleagues. So the military is probably the largest employer sports psychologist right now. So I have a lot of colleagues who work with special forces, and I went through some training with those guys and actually did a certification between um, Commander Mark Devine. Pretty interesting work. His response to me was like, yeah, you're a sports psychologist. That's great. I don't really care about the science. I just know it works because it's life or death for us. It's an interesting perspective. And what you find in what the SEALs do, when, other than creating teamwork and chemistry and a service to your brother, always not about you, it's your brother, it's the other, it's not you, is that they are incredibly positive. It is truly a can-do attitude. It's not to say that they don't have negative thoughts. 
but they interject positive thoughts and they interject them as a community. They actually sing them out. We were saying like, it's remarkable what you can do as a group. And it's not being Pollyannish, it's being purposeful. And you're not trying to get rid of the negative thoughts. You're just overriding them with something that's gonna get you moving in the direction that you wanna go. And I think that's, by the way, getting back, that's what acceptance commitment therapy is all about. It's value-based action. I imagine the purposeful part of, especially in the military, can really be anchoring, that you can go through a lot because of that bond and peer commitment, but also the purpose. And a question, both in the military or in sports teams, is there a higher degree of, let's say, calling each other out when someone does need a rest or a break, or when you see something in someone else that you may not see in yourself? So in corporate, I don't see enough of us doing that carrying across. We're kind of individuals doing our thing, and there are certain roles, leaders, managers, but from peers, from us all looking out for each other. In the best teams that I work with, 100%. I think of Ray, Ray Dalio. Was it, what is the hedge fund he runs, Bridgestone, or this $125 billion hedge fund? He's written a book called Principles, which is fascinating and what he does, but he has this thing of radical, this radical honesty, and that's part of what they do every day. They call each other out. They're forced to. It's the first time I've ever seen that in business. And it's fascinating me because it's like, this happens in the sport all the time, all the time. If you're not carrying your weight, you're going to be called on it. You're going to be called out because you're going to bring everyone else down. You bring the team down. But it's also okay you. to take a break or to not be on the field if you're not able to. Well, remember, there are other issues there too, because we're dealing with contracts. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it could clearly get complex, but at the same time, you have to put the team before you and your own ego. If you're injured, you're not performing optimally, you may have to sit this one out. And obviously coaches will probably step in before that and put you on the sidelines. But I also think too, remember, we talked about this earlier, is that when you look at these athletes as assets and you see that there's a point in their chain that may be fragile, whether it's an ankle or an elbow, you don't want to push them harder. You are going to pull them out and you're going to let them heal and recover until they're ready to go back because it's not in your best interest to lose that asset. It's a very different mentality. Well, not necessarily. It shouldn't be the same because we all say our employees are our greatest asset. No, theoretically, yes, it absolutely should. I think in action, I don't necessarily see that with the clients that I work with. Agree. I think there's a bigger depth to that than maybe we're at all practicing. What are some tools or techniques that someone could put in play immediately? What comes to mind? I think more than anything, we need to learn how to recover. Now, that obviously, that's a multifaceted term, but let's look at the lowest hanging fruit. And I'm sure we've heard this on every podcast is number one is sleep. So I monitor all my clients sleep with some kind of sleep monitoring device. There are some that are better than others, but nonetheless, we monitor it. And basically we say, if you're not getting seven to seven and a half, at least hours sleep a night, you are not optimally recovered, period. We get granular with this, particularly the athletes, we really get into this in terms of slow wave sleep and REM sleep. And but more than anything, it's like, it is a non-negotiable. So, I mean, you have some professional teams where they have a sleep coach that follows them around, looking at their sheets, looking at their mattress when they travel. I mean, it gets really serious, even going through different time zones and stopping over so that they're going to peak and get their circadian rhythm. Like, when you look at sleep performance, we can have a whole session on this. So it's one hour. I'm showing clients, if you're one hour off your sleep, optimal sleep, you could see a 30% decrease in testosterone. One day, 30%. 
does that mean? Well, that's processing speed, that's short-term memory, that's reaction time, that's emotional volatility, 30%. Now do that cumulatively over time. What happens? And now add a little alcohol, which by the way, could take four or five days to get your heart rate variability and your recovery central nervous system back to baseline, back to homeostasis. Four days, the research is telling us. A few drinks, coupled with lack of sleep, you're basically working with half your brain time around your head. That's number one. That is like a non-negotiable. Two, recovery is if you're not getting enough sleep, you're learning to meditate or some level of down-regulation of your nervous system. You don't care what you use. We have breath apps. We have people do transcendental meditation. They use mindfulness of meditation. There's tons of apps out there. They might do a yoga nidra, which is another kind of it. We don't care what you use, but we need to down-regulate your system throughout the day. And that might be in microdoses. That might be three to five minutes between really tight, deep work, so like the Pomodoro method kind of thing, where you're working 25, taking off for five, and then taking breaks in a day for 15 minutes and truly disengaging and downregulating. That doesn't mean flipping through Facebook or Instagram. That means shutting it down. That's number two. I think learning truly how to navigate your breath and checking in with yourself and doing this regularly can be remarkably refreshing. It can be remarkably relaxing, depending on what you need. Your breath is truly the volume control of your central nervous system. And there is breath training you can do, and you can get really proficient at this. We use box breathing. We use relaxation breathing. We use excitement breathing, depending on what we need. All these things matter. Going outside for periods of time. I see sometimes eight clients on Zoom in a day. Every time I have a break, I go outside and I am in nature. It down-regulates the system. I want my visual field to open up. I want to see the periphery. It's important. Third is exercise. More than anything, if you look at movement. Now, granted, I did my research. So my research in college looking at exercise as an intervention towards depression and anxiety. The literature is clear on this at this point. There is no ambiguity. You need to move throughout the day. It is not normal to sit down nine, ten hours a day in a chair. Genes turn off. I mean, basically, it is the most abnormal thing we've created for ourselves. And that doesn't mean getting up at your desk. That's great. You want to stand up desk? Great. That's fine. I'm saying move around, do an exercise. So we have a lot of students like, I have a pull-up bar here. I do push-ups. Every time I walk back in the room, five pull-ups, 10 push-ups, five squats. It takes three minutes before I hop on my next call. I love that. Integrating it through the day. We don't need a large time. It's hard to find a half hour to dedicate to training right now, but we can do it intermittently throughout the day and accumulate enough that it makes a difference. And this is not a physiological change. This changes our psychology, helps us focus better, helps our attention, makes us more durable. So it really does matter, right? And all the obviously great physical ways in terms of keeping some weight off and cardiorespiratory health and so forth. I mean, these are just simple methods in terms of upgrading the system and dealing and creating more resiliency. We could go on and no, I love these. And as a matter of fact, in our first episode, which was on resilience as well, there were 10 and these are spot on. And to your point about though tracking and paying attention and doing micro efforts, integrating it into your life versus it seeming this big, overwhelming thing you've got to do. There's a friend I just was chatting with, and she took the quick and dirty tests that we have on there, and she just mentioned me today that she realized that she spends almost no time in nature of late with all the challenge and has been forcing herself to really do that and what a difference it's making. It's just one that sometimes we don't think about. The psychiatrist's heart is John Rady. He's written an entire book on moving out in nature. It's fascinating what happens to your brain outside. 
why it's so essential. It's just part of our DNA, why we need to move that way. Also too, it's like what we're talking about with all this, I think we get caught up with this idea of optimal performance. Everybody's looking to perform optimally. And we would say even take it to the next level, like to me, optimal performance is like performing what you're capable of that day. So if you have your A game or your B game, you're still getting the work done. But we should also be living towards more flow experiences or peak performances because peak performances is basically what makes life worth living. That's what Abraham Maslow called peak experiences. So one of the major flow researchers, his name is Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who was, I think, the head of psychology at the University of Chicago for a while. He is the premier flow researcher. I don't know if you're familiar with this yes. research. And basically, he took over that term, but basically, it's the same thing. Peak experience is a flow experience. And when we're in this state of being where we call transient hypofrontality, basically where your thinking brain kind of downregulates, you get into the zone. This is where optimal performance happens. Like, this is where the sympathy, this is what we should be striving for in life, even more so than happiness. Do we lose ourselves? We get research is showing like 500 times more creative. We lose sense of time. We're fully engaged with being and being in the here and now. Usually our best work gets done. Why not create an environment and ecology around us that tends to foster being in that state more often? And I can tell you right now, chronically sucking up and grin and bear it doesn't get us there. Just the opposite, actually. It's more time and less work and less creative work. You become less productive. And what a great question to sort of ask yourself, how much time while you're working are you even in that zone? Are you recognizing that you're in that flow state? And if not very often or never, God forbid, but then it's a lot to pay attention to. Adam, what might you say to a really busy professional who's struggling but thinks they just don't have the time to take care of themselves? No one has the time. That's just another excuse. When you start coaching someone, they don't have the time. That is just the beginning. Once you dial that down, ultimately it comes down to priorities. And if you're telling me you don't have the time, you're telling me that you're not making yourself a priority. And then you could go a bit deeper and say, okay, then what are your priorities? What are your values? And they'll tell you their family, their work, all these things. So if you are not performing at your best and feeling your best, how do you think you can give yourself to your family and your work? So if you truly are telling me these are your values, we need to unravel a little more closely why you are not making this a priority. Because don't tell me you don't have time. At this point, right, you could look on your phone, you could actually see how much time you waste doing things on social media, whatever you may be doing that's eating up some of that time that you don't have, or at night, or whenever. I'm sure we can find it. I think what they might be saying is we don't have large gaps of time. And I agree with that. And I don't think we need it. That's why I'm talking about micro doses. Minimal effective dose throughout the day accumulated. We do a lot of AMPM rituals. The idea is to create these habits, these healthy habits early in the morning, not at the risk of losing more sleep, by the way. I have one client right now is getting six hours of sleep. Well, I just got up an hour earlier to do this. I'm like, no, just get the sleep. That's going to get you to perform better. But if you could find it and get to bed a little earlier, we create these rituals, which is like a breath ritual, meditation ritual, and a basic movement ritual. 15 minutes. We try to include journaling when we can. Very powerful, by the way in terms of drilling, and that's a whole other conversation, but very, for many reasons, particularly right now, I think it also gives us control. I think we could kind of check off the list of what we've accomplished. It gives us a sense of moving forward every day when every day seems the same. It gives us that dopamine squirt that we need. And then we revisit at night with PM. So we actually shut down. We give us our time to truly shut down, turn off technology. We may revisit the journal. We might have a mover practice or a breath practice at night, usually reading some kind of book 
get rid of the TV if possible, get rid of social media, being very careful of what we're consuming because it's all unconsciously elevating our central nervous system in a way that we don't want to. Our goal is to deregulate, downregulate. So it's creating these habits sometimes that are unconscious in a way that you're not even aware of, that just be, become part of your day. And I get it, it's difficult to do, but if you choose yourself first in this, ultimately I think the outcome will be what you want, which is being more productive. And to me, that's a Trojan horse. I'm like, yeah, it gets you more productive, but the way we're going to get there is to make you healthier and feel better. Adam, we always ask everyone, what's a great piece of career advice that you might share or something that's served you really well in your career? My career path started with a degree in philosophy, a couple of years in technology. I followed my curiosity to four graduate programs in applied physiology, clinical psychology, sports psychology. I'm back in school now doing executive coaching and leadership at business school, University of Texas. I follow my curiosity because it's always driven by passion. I never, ever follow a paycheck, ever. It seems to work out. Beyond that, it's also, I do it for the sense because I want to give to others. And I think if you can get that world-centric focus, it's remarkable how much more you can achieve. Nothing is a threat. Everything is a challenge. Life becomes much more interesting that way. Thank you so much, Adam. You gave us so much great insight and also so many practical things that we can do, put into play right away to stay more mentally and physically conditioned and resilient and also prepared for the road ahead. And we all need that. So thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's just great. I learned a lot myself, so it's wonderful. I appreciate it. Fabulous. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at Modern Career Pod. We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Thank you.